Hi, I'm Kathleen Sabo of New Mexico Ethics Watch, and this is Ethics Now, conversation about ethics in real life. And our guest today is Dr. Joan Gibson. She's a philosopher and ethicist, and frankly, her accomplishments and experience are so great and grand that it might take me the whole pro program to list them. So I'm, I will uh, get to a couple, but I also want to refer you to www.joanmgibson.com. But the couple I want to mention and Dr. Gibson are that you were the founder and director of the Health Sciences Ethics Program at the University of New Mexico. And for more than 20 years, you were an ethicist and chair of the Medical Ethics Committee for St. Joseph's Healthcare Services. And those, those are just a couple. As I said, there are many, many more, but welcome. Thank you so much, Dr. Thank Gibson, you. for being here. So we began this program when the pandemic uh, started and we thought, how can we serve people and how can we get people talking about issues and listening to some experts and for ideas about issues that are coming up for a lot of people and issues that are on everyone's minds. So we're going to be talking today about, you know, medical ethics generally and then some specific things. <clears throat> and Dr. Gibson, you and I have spoken quite a bit leading up to this program. And one of the things we decided we needed to define for ourselves and for listeners was what we mean by ethical when we're talking about ethical decisions. So why don't you go ahead and, and weigh in on that, please? I would be glad to. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I decided that after you and I had talked that I would go online and I'd read a little bit more about the New Mexico Ethics Watch. And um, it was uh, not only admirable, but really enlightening. Uh, and if I may, I'd just like to read what seems to me is your very brief and to the point uh, mission statement, which says the New Mexico Ethics Watch, founded in 2016, is a nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting ethics and accountability in government and public life in New Mexico. Um, and then immediately I went to the link and read the first place ethics essay. Uh, was that your first competition? That was, we just, our, our second one is open now. Uh, we just opened it last week, but yes, that was our, that was our first annual ethics essay. Fabulous. And uh, the young woman, Lisa Ray Waterer, mm -hmm. uh, the title of her essay, What Does Being Ethical Mean to Me?, which said, obviously, she's going to give us uh, some important definitions. So I'd like to give a shout out and um, uh, start with her, and then I will uh, very briefly, which is uh, difficult for a philosopher to do, very briefly tell you what I mean <clears throat> by ethical. Uh, but Lisa says, uh, number one, ethicality involves treating others with respect. Mm. So there is the individual uh, respect, treating people uh, really as equals. The second is um, uh, integrity is the quality of sticking to one's moral code in every circumstance. So mm -hmm. acting and behaving with integrity. Um, uh, is important. And just as, quote, just as integrity is essential to being ethical, so is being truthful. 
So you have respect for persons, you have integrity, you have being truthful. Uh, we're getting closer to um, definitions, but I, I suspect if I were to ask you or all of your listeners, so what exactly do you understand by respect for persons, integrity, uh, or truthful? You might get some different answers, and that's okay. But asking that question and being clear about what each of us means uh, is a way to prevent preventable conflicts, uh, conflicts at least. So my definition or answer to your question is um, a person is ethical when she or he is clear about what moral principles should guide uh, her actions, especially those that affect the well-being of other individuals and the society at large. Mm -hmm. That, I suppose, would be the respect for others. Assuring that our actions align with these top principles integrity, and committing to communicate with truth and transparency, which is uh, accountability in my lexicon. Uh, for me, I guess that is at least a start of a list um, uh, of my um, components of ethical action. Let me just say one other thing to kind of stir the pot a little bit. Um, a, a definition I've not offered you is moral principles. So when I use the phrase moral principles, I'm referring to rules or beliefs or standards about what actions are right or wrong as accepted by the individual or the social group. Ten Commandments, Golden Rule, professional codes of ethics. So why can't we just turn to um, our codes of ethics, let's say, and follow them. Uh, what about those corporate values that are hanging on uh, the walls in executive offices and conference rooms? Well, the truth of the matter is moral principles often collide. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, if you look at your professional code of ethics, uh, if you look at the Ten Commandments, and then you are faced with a specific decision or action, and you want to um, honor all those values and principles at the same time, you'll find that you can't. And so what that requires you to do is you've got to prioritize. You have to say in this situation, and I'm not talking now about ethical relativism, but to make this come alive and work for people, um, I'm going to have to decide, let's say, in medicine between respecting an individual's choice of treatment and the common good. Or what if, uh, and this is what we're dealing with, with medical aid and dying, what if by respecting individuals' choices, we go against uh, another uh, value, which for some people is do no harm. Suicide uh, is harmful. Uh, so these conflicts of moral principles are what make uh, moral decision-making 
difficult. It isn't so much choosing right or wrong, good or bad. It's choosing among competing goods. Right. And so there can't honor them all. Right. And so there's a weighing, there's a balancing. And so all the more reason to think about and discuss these issues ahead of time. Absolutely. So you're Absolutely. Not in the moment of absolute need looking at something for the first time. That's right. And to realize that every tough decision, because it requires those prioritizations, it's going to have a downside. Right. There are going to be some of those principles that really matter to you that are going to be compromised and maybe in some cases left by the wayside. And that's a matter of needing to make an immediate choice in in a decision. So I want to mention that you also are the author of a book called Pause, Ah. How to Turn (laughs) Tough Choices into Strong Decisions. And I, I find it you know, ironic, because for many of us, we're in a pause of sorts, whether we're at home more, whether we're working or not, whether our kids are with us, but we're also in a time where we may be called upon to make immediate decisions for ourselves or for others. So given that, and given we can say in balance, what is the most ethical thing that each of us can do with regard to medical decisions that may need to be made in the future? I will try in my answers to your questions model um, what is important to me as I think through um, decisions and actions. And the main thing is for me to be clear about what is most important to me, what value, what principle, what moral principle is at the top of my uh, list when it comes to that. So I will just for a start say, respecting persons, uh, respecting their choices, um, um, giving them the information and both the authority and the responsibility to make their own medical decisions. What that means for me is an individual. Um, I need to understand and take responsibility for my own health care situation. I need to anticipate foreseeable medical decisions that are quite likely to come down the road. And so, you know, for me, I'm 76. I have asthma. I just had open heart surgery, which was very successful. My goodness, I'm in a high risk category. I have a moral responsibility to do advanced care planning. I have a moral responsibility to uh, talk with my family, my Uh, physician about what are likely decisions that I would face should I come down, not just with COV-19, but with any kind of um, um, illness that might require my hospitalization and ultimate treatment. So I need to understand that. I need to talk, have a conversation with my family 
Uh, and these conversations, uh, many people find difficult and painful. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to uh, take advantage of the legal um, uh, authorizations that are in place in New Mexico, which is one of the best states in the country. Number one, it is very easy, and I must uh, and have appoint a healthcare decision maker proxy for me. Everybody should do that, regardless of age, condition, whatever else. Whether you're 18 or 25 or 76, it is quite possible that you will not be able to speak for yourself and somebody else will need to. So appoint a healthcare uh, proxy. Number two, talk with them about not so much do I want to be on a respirator or do I want a feeding tube or ventilator or whatever else. But if you have to make those decisions, let me tell you what matters to me. What for me at this stage of my life, quality of life means. Um, Having been an ethics consultant in a hospital Families who have done that, families who have had those conversations and who have not focused on treatment decisions, but on values, goals, uh, who can say to a physician, you know, the last time mom and I talked, here's what she said really mattered to her. Mm -hmm. Now, given that, um, what is the best course of events? It might be ventilation. It might not be. Bottom line, individuals take control of your uh, medical decision making, appoint a decision maker, and have these conversations. Now we have a we have a tool for oh, yeah. doing that, don't we? It's a and we're going to put up a list of resources, but we, we have a good tool, don't we? We have we have several tools. So the first one, of course, is an advanced direct. Now, if I say advanced directive to to folks, I ask them, what is that, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And they say, ah, death and dying. Um, And so they really don't want to do that. Some of them say, can't I just have a um, root canal and get over with it? Um, But uh, we have advanced directives and there is no legally mandated form, but the two um, components of an advanced directive, one are um, who is your authorized decision maker? Mm -hmm. In New Mexico, You don't need an attorney, you don't need a notary, um, you don't need a witness, um, none of those hurts. But we wanted to make it easy for people um, to um, uh, document and and assure physicians and nurses that this is okay uh, to follow um, uh, this proxy's decision making. To do that, however, and this is the second part of an advanced directive, you want to give these people some guidance. You want to um, tell them what matters to you. One of the resources, Kathleen, that I really want to point out uh, to your viewers is the Conversation Project. And we're going to post a link to that one. Good, wonderful. And I can tell you, Ellen Goodman uh, founded it. But just last week, they edited 
their um, uh, sort mm -hmm. of worksheet mm -hmm. for um, uh, listing your values. And it, it's called Being Prepared in the Time of COVID-19. It's outstanding. All of their resources are free and downloadable. And they cover a worksheet for listing your values, how to uh, select and, and appoint an effective healthcare proxy, how to um, plan for you or family members who have dementia. There's a pediatrics worksheet, how to talk to your doctor, uh, a number of really practical tools uh, for helping you name a decision maker and think about what is important to you. Well, One thing they don't say that I would urge is if you don't want to write down something like that, write a letter to your family. Okay. Write a letter. And a lot of times people are able in that format or medium to be more comfortable. Some of my uh, colleagues have uh, videotaped on their iPads um, a recording that their um, adult children who really don't want to talk about this when they realize they have to can listen to. So, and just again, why is this the ethical thing to do right now? Well, if by ethical, um, uh, you mean, uh, I mean, really um, uh, helping physicians respect me. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way they respect me is by knowing what my values are, and then um, they agree to abide by those values. How can they do that if I haven't told them what well, they are? Well, and it also it makes us think about community resources as well. And that's the part of the equation where we think about something outside of ourselves that that is part of an ethical consideration right. as well uh, um uh some friends and i uh on one uh bioethics colleague we were talking about so what would we add to what we've already done mm. um and what we have talked about adding and and i've done this is before one of my values was um Unless um, ventilation, CPR, mm, life-sustaining treatment um, is really likely to bring me back to a level where you and I can have this discussion on podcast, uh, don't do it. Keep me comfortable. Um, uh, I've had a good life. Um, and you can let me die. The thing that's now added is, well, what if that can happen, meaning I can come back, but there is a scarcity of resources? Um, yeah. Where do you want to be on that list? And um, what I've said is, uh, again, I've had a good life. And if by not ventilating me, you can ventilate somebody else, um, go for it. Well, and, and I think that's a conversation we're beginning to have. And you know, one of the things we, we haven't touched upon is what hospitals will do if you don't have an advanced directive, if you haven't made these decisions ahead of time. I think that's important. What you, you know that, I'm sure you know that. What will they do? Um, 
I just wrote a hypothetical case study for a, a class I'm doing tomorrow. Generally, um, resuscitation, ventilation, life-saving measures in the absence of uh, a really clear diagnosis and prognosis, in the absence of a statement of patient's wishes, the uh, default position is you go ahead and you treat, you ventilate, um, you even may perform CPR, which involves ventilation and also um, starting the heart if the heart, mm -hmm. if the heart stops. Um, we've added now the issue of scarce resources. We've also added the issue of safety to healthcare personnel because mm -hmm. performing CPR um, intubating is, people right and intubating it really is, I mean the viruses are just having having a field day so it gets more complicated but as you say we can really simplify it we can at least pick the low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. by um, confronting our mortality by uh, taking responsibility for educating ourselves about foreseeable medical decisions. There's one other two, uh, tool, Kathleen, and that is this most medical orders for scope of treatment. And this, I think, is, is a really important um, um, a document. It's um, in every state in the US. They have mm -hmm. different names, the more generic. Uh, title is uh, Pulse Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Here in New Mexico, and, and Dr. Nancy Gwynn, a palliative care physician, is the one who really has been responsible for this. She wanted it to be called Medical Orders for Scope of Treatment. Um, expanding it a little bit beyond just life-sustaining treatment. Um, it is for um, seriously ill patients. Mm -hmm. It's for people who, in consultation with their healthcare providers, physicians or advanced practice, uh, nurses, PAs, um, have a pretty clear idea of what their medical treatment wishes are. Uh, the really important distinction um, between this and an advanced directive, this is a medical order. Okay. This, like, which I think many of your viewers may be familiar with, like the out of hospital, do not resuscitate order that many hospice patients have at home with the red, um, boundary around it, because those are medical orders and um, they have to be signed by a licensed healthcare professional and done um, in conversation with you. Um, if EMTs, for example, come to your house and see this, um, and the, the expectation is because it's a medical order, uh, they will have to follow it. Okay. It includes more than do not resuscitate. It includes um, uh, 
treatments around hydration and nutrition, other medical interventions. Um, and there's some, um, not controversy, but discussion. I have some friends who are not seriously ill, but who have very firm um, uh, opinions about what medical treatments they do or do not want. Um, many physicians say this is um, for seriously ill patients because as we know, you know, you get into a situation like that and it's not uncommon for you to change, uh, right. change your mind. Well, let me ask you, do, does someone have to be proactive to, to do that or is it handed to you at a certain time in a hospital? No, day? I think, I think um, proaction Proactivity is essential in all of this. Um, patients are not the only ones who are busy, um, uh, maybe uh, not quite sure whether this is something they want to talk about with their family. Same thing with healthcare providers. Um, for um, uh, historically, a number of physicians and others, when you say advanced directives, uh, they immediately think end-of-life treatment decisions. Um, and it isn't just about death and dying. It is about having a healthcare proxy in place. It is if you do have treatment um, values, which we all do, um, uh, this should be part of an ongoing conversation. Um, two things. My, um, my late husband, Mike, had rheumatoid arthritis for 35 years. And he had an advanced directive. And I will say every time he went into the hospital and we talked about this, our values priority shifted right. because things, uh, things were different. That's okay. Um, number two... Um, he got a kidney from an 18-year-old who was riding his bike in angel fire and smashed into a tree. And it, he had um, uh, checked on his driver's license, I am an organ donor. But he'd never talked to his family yeah. at the time. And since then, and we've talked about that, it's a fabulous family. Uh, the importance of having these conversations with your family, with your physicians at all ages. Um, I will send you a link and, and a slide I use. The Institute of Medicine has something that it calls um, its life cycle model for healthcare decision making. And it encourages physicians and families. Uh, at various very predictable stages, when you turn 18, when you get a driver's license, when you go away to college, when you join the military, when you um, um, start what you hope is going to be a long-term relationship with somebody. These are all nearly universal moments where we can pause and take a stock of, you know, when I was 18, this is what I thought was important to me. You know, I'm about to have my first child, my first baby. All right. Um, how have things changed? And they do change. But unless we talk about it and unless we feel comfortable uh, and see 
the reason and the urgency for talking about it, we don't. And that may be the opportunity that this current situation is giving to us. If we don't see the urgency of talking, making plans, um, putting decision makers in place, I don't know what else would get our attention. Well, let's let's get back to the current situation a bit, and let's yeah. let's move on to hospitals because oh, if, yeah. I, if I want to take my my eighty eight year old mother, all of a sudden she's showing symptoms, or my brother uh, to a hospital, are, is each hospital going to treat the same situation in the same way? See, I do. I'm not a doctor. I'm a philosopher. I can't answer that. I would just think no. Okay. Uh, just, I mean, uh, look at look at different hospitals. Um, their, um, um, for example, uh, faith based hospitals, right, may have policies that prioritize certain values higher than others. Catholic hospitals non-sectarian hospitals right um uh, there is a you know a, a, not a raging a nationwide discussion about how standardized um policies should be um i was trying as you had given me advance warning about this question what is it that I would hope ethically that all hospitals would do. Well, and let's let's talk about why that's important just for a second, because yeah. I have a choice. Yeah. I mean, in some communities, I'm not going to have a choice. That's right. But in a place like Albuquerque, I sure. have a choice. I can choose right. one of a number of hospitals. So, right, right. so what's the most ethical thing for hospitals to be doing right now for the public with this situation at hand? Um, let me let me ask you um, sure. what um, what would assuming that you live in a community where you do have a choice um, what would steer you to one hospital and not another? Well, you know, and this is obviously just going to be a personal answer, but yeah. it would be uh, you know paying attention to the wishes of the patient and the family versus some other uh, outside influence, whether it would be religion or anything like that. But I, I don't even know if hospitals do that. I have so little contact with them, thank goodness, I'm grateful for that, that I don't know. But I would yeah. want to know that the wishes of my family would be, would be followed. Right. Um, I think that if you got into the elevators of most hospitals mm -hmm. here in Albuquerque, their patient's bill of rights um, would be very similar, if not the same. And I can't speak. There probably is um, uh, some federal uh, template or guideline. Um, I think that what I would want from every hospital in town is I would want their leadership to commit to transparent and truthful communication. <clears throat> I um, uh, would want uh, for policies that are being changed, for policies that are currently existing uh, around um, 
CPR. I would want to know that. Um, and um, this is true not just of hospitals, but of all um, leaders. And my colleague Mark Bennett and I found some of our most resistance when it came to our exhortation that, you know, you have made good decisions. And what we mean by that is you are clear about um, uh, the driving values. Your policies align with those driving values. You have identified what you don't like about your decision. Many of you have done that, and your policies reflect that internally. Have you communicated that to your staff, to your employees, to the people who are going to be affected by that? And generally, the answer is, well, no. But if we did, um, we're just giving ammunition to our adversaries. And my response to that is, listen, your adversaries don't need um, any more ammunition. And in fact, if you don't tell them the truth, they're going to make up stuff. Right. Um, so what, what, what I would urge, and it's something that we've been urging for over a decade, and it's in a worksheet in, in, in my book, and it is, what if every hospital CEO or administrator used the following template to report policies and decisions, let's say that affect um, the care of patients? And mind you, you need to figure out if this is something that is just an employee issue, um, for now, make sure that you inform the employees, but you're talking about um, patients and families coming in. Um, if you have decisions and policies uh, that affect uh, patients and families, um, explain them uh, and do so in a succinct, understandable way. Um, explain how you reach those, what the guiding values are, and don't just stop with the name of the value. And this is, I think, where uh, the real, um, how do I say this, uh, the real nut of, of, of moral content comes. I might say, for me, the most important value is patient rights and uh, patients, uh, the, the expectation, their wishes will be respected. And the reason that I pick that value is, and then fill in the blank. Um, it's, it's fine to say patient value, but unless you explain why you, as the CEO, pick that value, uh, people are not going to really understand it. Um, I'll, I'll get back to, uh, to that in a minute. But uh, explain it succinctly. Talk about the value that drove your decision uh, and why you picked that value. And trust me, the public will know if uh, your decision and that value don't align. Uh, spin 
is sort of my account of a decision that clearly does not follow from the value that I've just said. Uh, and you know, you don't have to be an ichthyologist to know when a fish stinks. You, uh, there is no uh, public relations person who can get rid of the odor of a decision that really doesn't flow from the value that you say. Finally, as a leader, tell me what is it you don't like about this current decision? Mm. What is it that gives you heartburn, keeps you awake at night? Because trust me, any kind of allocation of resource decision is going to be fraught with that. Any time that a family demands CPR on a patient where the physician and others know that it is not going to work, uh, and they either proceed with it or don't proceed with it, um, there are downsides to those decisions and actions. Every difficult decision involves a downside, and leaders have to appreciate that we see them. And if you aren't forthcoming about them, what does that mean? Well, either you didn't do due diligence. I mean, didn't, didn't you take into account this? Or what's even worse, you did, but you don't care. And that um, uh, creates a level of cynicism within a business, within an organization, within a community that is um, palpable. So for leaders, hospital leaders, in talking to the public about their policies that affect um, uh, decision-making, um, being honest, being transparent, uh, being clear about the values that drove those policies, and then being honest about um, the downsides. Well, and, and we'll, we'll hope that hospitals are doing that, and maybe that's something that we will revisit. But I, We've been I want, urging them to, and well, maybe this will, maybe just the like time the is now. care planning. Yeah. Maybe the time is now. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is sort of a wrap-up question, and sure. you know, New Mexico Ethics Watch, we've been involved in education and advocacy and research, oh, yeah. mostly in the good government realm. So right. this is a question that, you know, we, we, and you and I spoke about this, we could imagine potentially having a community, a statewide conversation about our values. Mm -hmm. And then I'm, my question would be, would it be ethical for public officials, the governor or the legislators, to then somehow get involved in the prioritization of care based on our values? <sighs> yeah, you threatened to ask me that question. <laughs> so it's <laughs> well, you know what, and maybe, know. maybe we just pose it and we leave it, right. we leave it out there. Well, yeah, so here is... Um, Here's what I've been brooding about okay. since you um, uh, asked me that. Um, we all wear multiple hats. We all inhabit multiple roles, each one of us. 
um, we are potential patients. We are family members. We are parents, partners, siblings, governors, state senators, um, university professors, mm -hmm. all at the same time. And one of the um, things that my colleague Mark Bennett and I realized early on was when you are faced with a decision that is truly yours, uh, it is imperative that you announce, in this situation, I am acting as governor mm -hmm. or state senator or um, um, hospital administrator or um, uh, wife of um, a man who is terminally ill. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, all of the, many of those might be the case for one person. Each role um, carries with it the responsibility to perhaps reprioritize values. Uh, would your top value, if your partner were terminally ill and you were his or her um, primary decision maker, would your top priority be the same as if you were acting as governor of New Mexico? Right. Or And, you know, the answer for all of these is no, and any of, of us who have served, I mean, you as an attorney, um, uh, acting in behalf of clients, uh, your list of priorities would probably um, uh, arrange differently than as a partner um, or maybe as a journalist. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is okay, that's the reality of it. But I think our ethical responsibility, whether we are politicians, um, or government employees, whatever, is to be clear, in this situation, this is my role. And this is how I see uh, the nature of my responsibility and accountability. And then let that happen. Is that, does that move us ahead or is that just a, you know, my ramblings at 3 a.m. this morning? No, that, listen, I, there's, we can only, answer what we think might be possible mm -hmm. and what might happen. To me, it would seem like a good time to have discussions about community values oh, yes. and be and be clear about them. I don't, do I know exactly how that could take place? I think this is a start when we start even just, just bringing it up. Absolutely. Uh, but, but, you know, I, I was just, you know, we don't know the limits yet of what our public officials might have to do or might be capable of doing. So I think it's good to, to reach out into the future and just consider those things, to be prepared for them. Absolutely. Um, and what do I expect of my elected representative? Because um, in, in the absence of my saying that, as we all know, uh, folks and, and Circumstances rush in to fill the gap. 
And my silence is as much an action and a decision with consequences as is my, my speech. Well, listen, this is such a rich area for discussion. It's no wonder why you've spent you know, most of your life in this area. And we're not going to be able to cover everything today. I suspect we'll be asking you to come back on, you know, a few months down the line or, or even sooner. But I do hope you'll be available as a community resource in some way or another and that people will, will talk with you about these issues. I would be glad and thank you for doing this. I think one of the unintended benefits of this uh, sheltering at home is um, the uh, communication mm -hmm. in this way. Uh, and it's sort of interesting uh, to see, is this, does this feel a little safer to people? Um, or uh, are we able to say things that we might not say in a public forum? I, I don't know the answer to that, but I am finding the candor, the generosity, uh, the um, uh, acknowledgement of the power of collaboration and conversation mm -hmm. has really been brought to the fore. So it's thank a, you for doing this. You're welcome. It's a wonderful outgrowth of this. So thanks to our guest, Dr. Joan Gibson. You can certainly find out way more about her and connect with her by going to www.joanmgibson.com. You can connect to every Ethics Now episode at www.ethicsnow.org or on all major podcast platforms. Visit our Ethics Watch Facebook page to suggest topics or guests or email us at ethicsnowshow at gmail.com. Thanks again, Dr. Gibson, and thanks for listening, and see you next time on Ethics Now. Thank you. Thank Be you. well.